This morning's passage is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Please follow along in your Bible, or you can follow along in your worship guide on page 11. If you are able and willing, please stand for the reading of God's word. Before I read, I remind you that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Here's the word of the Lord, Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, Only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Corey. English poet William Henley wrote uh, his most famous poem in the late 1800s. You might recognize it, Invictus, which is Latin for unconquered. I'm sure many of you have heard it. It goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of 
of my soul. That poem has inspired millions of people over the years. Nelson Mandela, while he was in prison, Timothy McVeigh, as he received lethal injection for murdering 167 people in the Oklahoma City bombing, he invoked that poem. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Inspiring words for millions of people, but are they true? The reality is they're not even true for the one who wrote them. William Henley, you may know, was an avowed atheist. And that poem was representative of his effort to suppress the truth, to rebel against God. He wrote that poem when he was 27 years old. He had been suffering from tuberculosis. He had already lost a leg at the time, and he would eventually die at the age of 53. He most certainly was not the master of his fate. If William Henley, the author of that poem, was not the master of his fate, the captain of his soul, if you are not the master of your fate, the captain of your own soul, who is? Paul has been making it clear that the sovereign God, Yahweh, the great I am, that this God and God alone, he is the master of our fates. And yet this does not absolve us of human responsibility. We do have real choices to make, and what we do does matter. These are hard truths for us to understand. We're in the middle of this section on Romans chapter 9. I think I have said every week I preached a portion of it that James Boyce says this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. So keep that in mind as we study this passage together. Hard truths to understand, yes, but beloved, let us also keep in mind as we continue our study that our God can be trusted. And he can be trusted more than you can trust yourself or any other person or any philosopher or any human ruler or government system or man-made religion. Our God can be trusted And his word is good and true. And if we struggle to trust him, let us remember to look to the cross where we see that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, he gave his own son Christ to die for us. Let us remember that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up For us all, how will he not also with him freely, graciously give us all things? Let us look to the cross and trust in our Savior as we continue to study these hard truths. In Romans 9, we have seen Paul's anguish over those who are cut off from Christ. Over those who, as we'll see in our passage today, may be considered vessels of wrath. He's in anguish over them. His heart is in deep sorrow. We have also seen that the word of God has not failed. That God is faithful, always faithful to his every promise. Paul has asked us, is there injustice on God's part? He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He hardens whom he hardens. And then he says, well, some will say, well, that's not fair. 
Why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? And that's the objection that we will look at today. And we could summarize this section of Romans by saying this. God has the right to do as he wills. And he freely exercises his will to make known the riches of his glory for the everlasting joy of his people. God has the right to exercise his will. He freely exercises that will to make the riches of his glory known for you who trust in him forever. Now, as we look at this passage today, we'll make four main observations, four truths that we learn about God. I'll state them right up front and then we'll consider each one. No one can resist the will of God. God is the creator. Mankind is the creature. God has authority and power to do as he wills. And it pleases God to make his glory known for the everlasting joy of his people. So those are our four observations, the four truths we'll consider. So first, no one can resist the will of God. That includes you. You cannot resist the will of God. Paul begins at verse 19, and he asks, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? And implied in the answer to to that question, Paul confirms is this, no one, no one can resist the will of God. And beloved, this is the complaint against God's sovereignty, particularly in the area of salvation. This is why people have a hard time with the doctrine of unconditional election. If God chooses people for salvation before they are ever born, and that choice is not based on anything in them whatsoever, not on their will or desire or on their efforts or actions, how can that be right? How can that be fair? And that is the exact objection that Paul is raising and that he's answering. He's saying, you are hearing me talk about God's sovereignty. His choice, his freedom in election. You've heard me say, he has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. And now I can hear you thinking, I can hear you say to me then, well then why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? And notice, in Paul's answer, there is no appeal to human free will he does not say oh i'm sorry you misheard me you misunderstood actually it's totally up to you to each individual you get to choose that's not his answer that's absolutely not the way he answers this objection instead he essentially says there is no such thing as ultimate human self-determination And so contrary to what William Henley may wish, you are not the master of your fate. You are not the captain of your soul. Instead, Paul affirms what is implied in the question, no one can resist the will of God. You cannot resist the will of God. And beloved, for the children of God, that is good news for us. It's good news to know that the God who reigns over all is loving and kind and good and he rules over evil. 
You know, throughout history, people have tried to resist the will of God. Pharaoh tried. And what happened to him? He was buried in the waters of judgment. Why? Because God was determined to deliver his people from oppression and to glorify his name. You know, Jonah, Jonah tried to resist the will of God. And what happened to him? He was thrown into the waters of judgment, but God rescued him. He turned him around. Why? Because God was determined to have mercy on the people of Nineveh. Paul, who wrote these words, this letter to the saints at Rome, he tried to resist the will of God. And what happened to Paul? Jesus came to him. He manifested his glory to Paul and stopped him in his tracks. And he said to Paul, I am Jesus. And you are the chosen instrument of mine. He comes to Paul and he essentially says to Paul, listen, Paul, this is my will for your life. You will carry my name before the Gentiles and before kings and before the children of Israel. God was determined to use Paul to proclaim Christ and bring salvation to his people. Beloved, no one can resist God's will. You cannot resist God's will. Second, God is the creator. Mankind is the creature. God is the creator. You, each one of you sitting here or watching on the live stream, you are created. God is God. You are not. And so, you have no right to talk back to God. Paul answers the questions, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will with four questions of his own? Now, I'm sure some of you don't like when your questions are answered with questions. That's what Paul does here. The first three emphasize the distinction between the creator and the creature. So verse 20, Paul responds, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now that phrase, to answer back, it's not referring to an honest, humble question. We can bring those kinds of questions to God. Look at Zechariah and Mary sometime, and the, the different way they responded to the word of the angels. And you'll see the difference. You know, this answer back, it's not asking an honest, humble question, not with a desire to learn, a desire to trust. No, the attitude behind answer back this question is one of rebellion and pride and so here paul is most certainly putting us in our place if you heard that you heard correctly he is putting us in our place he's rebuking any sense of entitlement that we may have and he's reminding us we have no right to talk back to god our creator essentially he's saying Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? What right do you have to talk back to God? And Paul wants, he wants the weight, the the heaviness, the glory of this distinction between the creator and the created to sink in. 
God and you could not be more different. You are mere man, and God is Yahweh, the great I am. So consider the great difference between man and God. God is creator. You are created. God is infinite. No limits. You are finite. God is independent, self-existent. You are dependent. Every breath you breathe is a gift from God, your creator. God is all-knowing. You know in part, and you are often wrong. God is perfect in wisdom. We are limited and foolish. God is loving. You are selfish. God is holy. You are sinful. God is all-powerful. You are weak. If you want this distinction to hit home, let me give you a wonderful Sunday Sabbath afternoon assignment. Maybe you've done this before. You've heard me say this before if you've been a member of here for long. But read Job. You can read the whole book if you want. But read Job 38 through 42 in one sitting and read it out loud. I'll give you just a little taste. So, so most of you know the story of Job. He suffered tremendously. Lost everything, 10 children, his whole family, his wife cursed him in one day. Job could not resist the will of God. Job did not understand his suffering, and he took his complaint to God eventually. And here's just a portion of that ending section of Job. So Job takes his complaint to God, and God answers. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this? that darkens counsel without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And question after question after question, exalting the majesty and the glory and the power of God, pounding home to Job his weakness, his limits, putting him in his place, so that in chapter 40, the Lord says to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. But the Lord proceeds. He again says to Job, dress for action like a man. I'll question you. You make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me? That you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Can you look on everyone who is proud and bring him low? And tread the wicked where they stand? Go home and read the whole section. And then at the end, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you, can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And Job closes his confession with these words. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Beloved God is creator. You are created. Like Job, you have no right to talk back to God. Paul continues this distinction in his next question. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And the implied answer is no, right? The thing that is molded, the created, it cannot object. It simply serves its purpose. Earlier at the beginning of this week, Uh, Leilani and Haven Robinson were over at our home. Many of you know them, members here at Proclamation. And Leilani asked me what church was going to be about here, uh, this coming service right now. What's the sermon going to be about? And she had been playing with Play-Doh, right? So I said, well, let's go, let's go play with Play-Doh. So we sit side by side and she takes her little lump and I take my little lump and, and I start to make something and what do I make? Well, like a hot dog or a snake. That's about my talents, you know? Here, look what I made. And I think, well, let me try something else. Maybe I can have a little more talent. So I start to form some letters, and I make the word Troy. Of course, what else am I going to spell? I make the word Troy. And then I say to her, see what I made? I said, look at the letter T. Is a T going to yell at me and say, hey, I don't want to be a T. Make me an L. I want to spell Leilani, not Troy. No, that's ridiculous. The, The T doesn't object. Because who makes that decision? The creator, the molder, the former. Who has the power? Who has the authority? Who has the right to decide? Not the clay, not the molded, but the one who is molding, the creator, the potter. And this brings us to the third question that Paul asks and the third truth that we see about God. God does as he wills. He does as he pleases and he has the right He has the authority and the power to do so. Verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And again, the implied answer is yes. The potter most certainly does have that right, that authority, that power. And the rightness of the potter is not determined in any way by the clay. It lies solely in the wisdom and the purpose of the potter alone. He decides, he determines what is right, what is fitting, what is wise. So what can the potter do? He can take a lump of clay, the same lump of clay, and he can use some of it to make a toilet, and he can use some of it to make fancy dishes that are only used for the most special of occasions and feasts and celebrations. In the context of this chapter, we might say that God, the potter, made Jacob for honorable use and Esau for dishonorable use. Two children born at the same time, same womb, same mother. We might say that he made Moses for honorable use and Pharaoh for dishonorable use. The point here is that God is 
the potter. He does as he pleases, according to the counsel of his perfect and wise will. And he has the right, the authority, the power to do so. The fourth truth we learn about God. As God exercises this power, this authority, this this right. It pleases God to make his glory known. It pleases God to make his glory known for the everlasting joy of his people. And beloved, that is good news for us who belong to him. He makes his glory known for your joy. Look at verse 22, that fourth question. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, before we look at that final truth about God, I do want to address the doctrine of reprobation that I mentioned a few weeks ago, and also the difference between vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. So you might remember that I said you, we could say the doctrine of reprobation is like the other side of the coin to the doctrine of unconditional election. So unconditional election, the Bible speaks of the elect, those predestined, those determined beforehand by God for salvation. So these are people, these are vessels of mercy that God and his grace has chosen before the foundation of the world, before they were ever born, before they had done anything good or bad, that God has actively intervened in their lives. He has actively chosen and elected them to be saved. But what about the rest? What about those who are not saved? What about people who reject Jesus and are justly punished in hell? The doctrine of reprobation has to do with these people, with those who are not elect, those who are condemned to hell. Some would say predestined to damnation. Well, how does this work? How does this happen? The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, is on God's eternal decree. And it addresses this very question. And this is what it says. And this confession, we believe, is an accurate summary of what the Bible teaches as part of our church, our denomination. So this is what it says. God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extends or withholds mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's a summary of what God does with the rest of mankind, those who are not elect. So so notice the action of God in election and the action of God in reprobation are not the same. We've made this observation before. But in election, God actively chooses people for salvation. If he did not, all people would be condemned. That's the reality. 
the truth of what the scriptures teach. If God did not intervene, actively intervene when he was under no obligation to do so. But if he didn't actively intervene in mercy, everyone would be condemned. All people would of their own record reject him. In reprobation, God passes by those he does not choose for salvation. So we could say there's no positive action on God's part to intervene and save them. He doesn't have to do that for anyone. He chooses to do that for some, and the rest he passes by. So in election, God actively chooses some for salvation. In reprobation, he passes by others, thus leaving them to their own will. And those he passes by are not innocent. Like everyone else, they are guilty sinners. Beloved, God never condemns innocent people. And he never condemns anyone who wants to be saved. God only condemns guilty sinners. Which we all are from birth. And we all deserve. But he only condemns guilty sinners, those who reject him. But God does have the right. He has the right, the power, the authority to save or not save guilty sinners as he chooses. He has mercy on whomever he wills. And thanks be to God that he does, because that's why you are saved if you are. He's had mercy on you. Now, we see this in how he describes the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy in verse 22. It says, God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, this is an English translation, right? A better word for prepared would be fit. Vessels of wrath fit for destruction. Or we might say suited for destruction. And the idea is these people are guilty. They bear real guilt and real responsibility so that they can never say, I don't deserve this. And these vessels of wrath, we could also say, have fitted themselves for wrath. God here is not the clear subject of the action. It's not clear that he's the one doing the action. So some people take it either way. Some people will try to say, well, God's the one who has actively intervened and fit them for destruction. But that's not what the text clearly says. You can read the text as the people have fitted themselves for wrath. And certainly, that is what happens in life. And that is what other scriptures, Romans 1, Ephesians 1, confirm. And the wording here, the subject, is not the same for vessels of mercy. So there's a distinction between the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy. For vessels of mercy, it's clear. It's very clear who is the subject, who's the one doing the action. Paul says, he, God, God has prepared beforehand for glory. So not only is God the clear subject, the one doing the action... But there's a different word used here for that phrase, prepared beforehand. It's not the same as fit for destruction, the vessels of wrath. Prepared beforehand means to ordain or to prepare in advance. It's used in Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship, which God prepared for us beforehand for these good works for us to do. Same word there. So are you following me? So unconditional election, reprobation, vessels of wrath, 
vessels of mercy, these are not equivalent acts by God. If we wanted to summarize it simply, we could say it like this. While God is the author of our salvation, mankind is the author of his own damnation. Beloved, God is the author of our salvation. If he was not, there would be no salvation. But God would be perfectly just to condemn all of mankind for the damnation that each one of us has earned. But now let's come back. Let's come back to the purpose. So there's a brief explanation of doctrines that theologians have discussed and debated for 2,000 years. So if you want to talk more about that, you have questions about that, I'd be glad to talk with you more afterwards. I know it's hard, but let's remember, God can be trusted, and he is good and wise and loving and merciful. But let's come back to the purpose. What's the purpose of these vessels of wrath, and what do we learn about God from it? And here's the main one. It pleases God to make his glory known for the everlasting joy of his people. There are actually three purposes mentioned in verses 22 and 23. And the first two serve this overriding third purpose, which I just mentioned. We'll, we'll see them in the text. So first, if God, desiring to show his wrath. So there's one purpose. God acts to show his wrath against sin. And in doing so, he reveals his glory. God is a holy God who hates sin. Sin is wicked and evil, and it deserves to be punished, and it will be punished. Beloved, every sin, every sin. So what should you think about right now? Not the gross sin of others, but the gross sin of your own heart and life. Every sin, your every sin deserves God's wrath and curse. And in God's perfect justice, that is exactly what every sin receives. It's either poured out on you, the sinner, the one who rejects God, or, thanks be to God, it is poured out on the sinless one, Jesus, the Savior, the substitute, the sacrificial Lamb of God in our place. Hallelujah, amen. amen. You realize, don't you, that there would be no vessels of mercy if Jesus had not come. If God did not send his own son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world, that's the only way there can be a single one vessel of mercy because of God's great grace and mercy. So God acts to show his wrath against sin. In doing so, he shows his glory. Second, if God, desiring to make known his power, so God acts to show his power in judgment. He's the judge of all the earth. He's the king who rules over all. No one and none can withstand him. So there's two purposes. But these first two purposes, God's wrath against sin on the one hand, his power and judgment on the other, they come together and they are seen in his enduring with much patience vessels of wrath fit for destruction. Now what does this mean? This means that those who are truly guilty, they are given many opportunities to repent that God is patient with them. So, in the example of Pharaoh, God endured with much patience this vessel of wrath. God gave Pharaoh at least 10 opportunities 
to repent. Over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. He sent his prophet to Pharaoh to call him to repentance. And over and over again, Pharaoh of his own will refused. He refused to repent and to honor his creator. And his heart was hardened. We saw that last week. But in that phrase, we also see the third purpose mentioned for these vessels of wrath. And remember, that third purpose is served by those first two coming together. God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath fit for destruction. Why? In order to, here's the grand glorious purpose, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So Paul is saying the deepest reason that God acts in sovereign freedom He's the master of everyone's fate. He's the captain of everyone's soul. The ultimate reason for this is so that the, the, uh, the ultimate reason for the exercise of his sovereignty in both judgment and salvation is because that is the best way to make his glory known. So that you, vessels of mercy, his people, his children, you can behold the full display of his glory most clearly so that you can know him fully and worship him with wonder and awe and joy for all eternity. Beloved, if God did not display his wrath and his judgment, we would not know the depths of his mercy and love. His glory would not be fully manifested. So the ultimate purpose is not wrath and judgment. The ultimate purpose is to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. That you, his people, you who have received mercy, you would know him and you would worship him. You would know the depths of his love for you. You would know, you'd have at least some sense, certainly not a full sense, but at least some sense of the depths of what Jesus has suffered in your place. And this would lead to a life of thankful praise and humble worship and obedient love and fervent witness. Well, Paul closes this section in verse 24 to 29 by quoting from the Old Testament prophets Hosea and Isaiah. And he's showing us salvation has always relied on God's undeserved mercy. And it has always included a select group of Jews and Gentiles so that the word of God has not failed. That opening question in verse 6, has the word of God failed? Here we see again the answer, no, indeed it has not. Well, today as we have studied this passage, here is what the text has revealed to be true about God. No one can resist the will of God. You cannot resist the will of God. God is the creator and you are created. God does as he wills. He does as he pleases and he has the right, the authority, the power to do so. And it pleases God. It pleases God to make his glory known for the everlasting joy of his people. So how should we How should we respond to these truths? When you read the scriptures, great questions to ask are, what's true about God? What's true about people, about me? And how should I respond? And perhaps also, who can I tell? 
But how should we respond? Well, at the beginning we said these are hard truths or doctrines to understand, but God can be trusted. So, beloved, let us trust our loving, sovereign God. And let me encourage you, do not try to reconcile what the scriptures do not reconcile. How do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? How do you reconcile divine sovereignty, unconditional election, and our responsibility to respond? Paul's answer is, you don't. You don't reconcile it. He doesn't reconcile it for us. He doesn't make it make sense. He simply affirms both. Both are true. And it will never make sense to you in a way that satisfies you. Except for submission to the sovereignty of God. Trust in his goodness. There are some things we simply cannot answer or fully understand. But, beloved, in all things, God can be trusted. So we trust God in things that are hard to understand. We also trust God in our suffering. This has been a theme throughout Romans. It's really a theme throughout the scriptures. But beloved, God says to you in his word today that he has prepared you for glory. He's prepared you for glory. And we have seen that everything about you as a child of God Everything about you is in the hands of your maker and is leading to glory. Remember Romans 8, suffering first, then glory. So we know our pain will not be wasted and it will not last. For those of you who trust in Christ, you will enjoy eternal glory with Jesus. That's why you've been made for eternal glory glory. That's where your life is headed. So you can trust God with every detail of your life. He's making his glory known for your everlasting joy. And then also, beloved, you can trust God when it comes to vessels of wrath. I know as we study this question or study this passage, A natural question is, what if my loved ones are vessels of wrath? And that was the anguish Paul felt in the beginning of Romans 9. Don't forget what he said. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Because he had loved ones who had rejected Christ and they were cut off from Christ. So what if my loved ones are vessels of wrath? And beloved, let me say this, there is no way that you can know that in this life. There's no way you can know that in this life. So as hard as it may be, do not fear it. Do not fear it and instead live from faith and not from fear. And know that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So beloved, what do we do when we think about this question? We ask ourselves, Lord, am I doing everything I can to proclaim Christ? 
and provide opportunities for people to repent and believe in Jesus. We are not called to make this distinction. Who's a vessel of mercy? Who's a vessel of wrath? We are called to love all people and proclaim the glory of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Our call is to praise God. And we do that not only here as we worship him, but we do that as we strive to live a holy life Monday through Saturday before the people that we know and love. And we are called to love people, to serve them in practical ways. And we are called to proclaim Christ. We are not called to change hearts. We can't do that. We trust God with the fruit, with the harvest. And beloved, he is so much more merciful than we are. You know, fear arises in our hearts when we imagine that everything depends on us. But salvation does not depend on us. Our God is a God who saves and he rejoices when sinners repent. So let us learn, let us strive to live among the lost, among our loved ones, with what some would call a faithful, non-anxious presence. A faithful, non-anxious presence. Faithful, we live lives of holiness. We proclaim Christ. We love people. And we do so in a non-anxious way. The weight of their salvation is not on me. I am not responsible. I cannot save them. I'm responsible to be a faithful witness for Christ. God alone can save, and he can save anyone, and he will save everyone who calls on him. He is the Lord of the harvest, not you. So let me share one quick story with you. Bear with me. I know time is getting long. But let me tell you the story of Luke Short. He heard a sermon from John Flavel when he was 15 years old and rejected it. He did not live for Christ. He did not love Christ. He lived a life of a heathen, a pagan, for 85 years. He's 103 years old and in good health because he's out in his garden, out in the farm. And over 85 years later, the Holy Spirit brings to his mind the sermon from John Flavel when he was 15. And there in his garden, he bows the knee before God Almighty and he becomes a vessel of mercy on his own. No one was there beside him. But the word of God by the Holy Spirit was brought to his heart once again. So let us trust God with those that we weep over. He's a God who saves. Beloved, if you're a child of God today, it is 100% because of God. 100% the work of God. You were dead and he made you alive. You were spiritually blind and he gave you sight. You were spiritually deaf with no ears to hear and he made you hear. Your heart was hardened and he gave you a new heart. You were his enemy and he sent his son to die for you and he made you his friend. You were an orphan, he made you his child. You were enslaved in the kingdom of darkness and God Almighty came after you. As Teddy reminded us last week, you were in the teeth of the bear and he came and rescued you and he took you out of the mouth of the lion and he delivered you and he brought you into his kingdom of light. 
You were not his people, and now you are his people. You were not beloved, and now he calls you beloved. Trust this God and give glory to God for your salvation. Thank God that you could not resist his will. That he effectually called you to himself. Beloved, who's the master of your fate? Who's the captain of your soul? You know, in the early part of the 20th century, Dorothy Day responded to Henley's manifesto with an incredible poem of her own. His was titled Invictus, Unconquered, and hers was titled Conquered. And it goes like this. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his, the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud under the rule which men call chance. My head, with joy, is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his, the aid that spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Amen. 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 Thanks be to God.